Trying to score from the plug today I sure could use a shot Zannies are helping but I need more Guess I'll smoke some pot I'm about to go insane Sometimes I need to go where everybody does cocaine And we always find a vein I want to fix and do some blow The troubles will go away I want to be where everybody does cocaine You should you dope, I'll smoke some crack Junkies are all the same I want to be where everybody does cocaine. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oral Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. They were founded by Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. They were voted top five rehabs all over the world multiple times, and everyone that I know that has been there has only raved about this place. Their mission, to treat addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure that when you're kicking, the kick is as comfortable as possible, which is really all you can ask for in a kick. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Surfing, equine therapy, sound bath meditation, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Your Sober Buddy. What is Your Sober Buddy? It is an app on your phone that can help you get or stay sober. There are challenges that help you engage in mindfulness and lets you see what a life in sobriety can do for you and how fun it is to be mindful, be in the moment, and to be sober. I use this app on a regular basis. I cannot say enough things about it. Sign up for Sober Buddy and get seven days free. It is available on the App Store and the Google Play Store. Their Sober Tracker is free forever, so you can brag and boast and share how much clean time you have. Get it at the App Store, get it at the Google Play Store, or get it at YourSoberBuddy.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity. They have unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and they send results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com dopey. One more time, that's www.soberlink.com dopey. 
This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Evolution Accounting and Consulting. If you have an idea that you turned into a business, you're going to need an accountant. Evolution Accounting and Consulting is the spot. Their whole mission is to make sure you can pursue your dreams while they take care of the other stuff. They do payroll, they do taxes, and all the accounting issues that you probably don't know how to do. And Evolution and Accounting is passionate about helping you pursue your dreams. Most importantly, though, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now, and he knows the struggles as well as the success. He also knows how recovering drug addicts can make businesses work. Use the promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. Again, it's www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. Now, before we get into the show, I just want to remind you to sign up for Patreon. There's a lot of exclusive stuff on there. Even if you just join the $2 tier, the $5 tier, the $10 tier, the $20 tier, or even the ultimate junkie fantasy $100 tier, whatever you give, it gives a little bit of Dopey back into the world. The plan is to work on Dopey full-time, putting much more super Dopey material out. Speaking of which, the video for DopeyCon is going to be available very soon, so look for that. The Forever in Debt merch just came out. We're doing one order, so if you want a Forever in Debt hoodie, t-shirt, tank top, crop top, whatever... Put in the order now. You will get it in like two or three weeks. That's when we're going to do the printing. So um, all the other gear is available at dopeypodcast.com. I have some exclusive DopeyCon merch that I'm going to post on Instagram. And if you want it, I'm going to complicate things and you just Venmo me. Anyway, enough with this bullshit. Here's the fucking show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and other dumb shit. And I am at my dad's house, joined by strung out author and unlicensed advice columnist, elite equestrian, and all sorts of other stuff. Aaron Carr, welcome back to the show. Hello. I feel like you haven't been in the show in a little while. I haven't been. Well, on you are Dopey. I was at DopeyCon, but I haven't been on the show for like. I, I was just saying, I don't think I've seen you in like six weeks, maybe outside of DopeyCon. Aaron just said that I constantly seek praise and validation. That's not what I. And said. And now I'm like, tell me that I'm the best at seeking praise and validation. <laughs> Tell me I'm really the best. You at that. are. You're stop. There's it. nobody better than you uh, at seeking uh, validation. <laughs> well, it, it, it stopped me in my tracks uh, because we were talking about what were we talking about? We were talking about like the post. Right. Uh, dopey con slump. And then also about like your need to always make the show like two hours and like two really good hours. Well, it doesn't need to be two really good. Oh, hours. just two. It just needs to be oh. two. Okay. Hours. And I'm totally <laughs> satisfied now. When's the last time you did something mm -hmm. and then came down from it? I mean, probably, I mean, definitely DopeyCon. Did I you mean, come down from yeah, that? Yeah, it's, I mean, because also like that in like a two week period, I had a lot of events and, you know, when you have events like. Tell me DopeyCon was the best event in those two by weeks. By far. Right, it was good, huge. Good. I mean, I would, that was the biggest event that I did for sure. And the best. I think it was probably the event of the year. 
It was. Lots of people reached <laughs> out to me and like the first Opicon people reached out to me and they were like, this is the best thing I've, they've ever done. Mm-hmm. And a couple people reached out to me about this one and said that. I thought it was fantastic. It was really, it was a fun night. It was fun being a part of it. It was fun being in the audience. It was fun meeting people. And like, there's so many people I didn't meet and I feel bad that I didn't meet them. But, you know, it's hard with that many people who I haven't met before to like remember who's who until they come up and say something. So what do you do <clears throat> when you need to come down on something? Chocolate. I mean, I always, oh, look, here's oh, the yeah. thing. Can I tell you that yeah. since DopeyCon, you haven't had any chocolate. I haven't stopped eating. Oh, I've, my really? eating has gone off the charts. That's weird. Cause I, I thought when I walked in here today, I was like, Oh, you look like, like your face looks a little thinner. No, I've been eating two bowls of cereal at night with chocolate chips and white chocolate chips and chocolate syrup. This is very, wait, you put chocolate syrup on your cereal? Yes, at the dessert cereal, the evening okay. cereal. All has right. chocolate I syrup. understand. My husband does this too. He's a cereal in the middle of the night person. I'm not a cereal person in general, but I mean, I say like anything that, I always need like a cookie. You know what I mean? Like the proverbial cookie, like something like that I'm like, okay, what's like the next thing? So it's either, I mean, like the addict part of me like wants like food and sex. And then the sort of like healthier channeling of that is to kind of look toward like what's the next exciting thing I can look at, like look forward to. So I guess whether that's like, I mean, for me, it's always work related. Me too. (laughs) Because I'm not a, I'm still not a very well person all the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I'm always like, like if I'm waiting, I know I do this, like if I have like a big deadline for something and it passes and like it went really well, like a work thing, I have to start like working on like an, like another new work thing that for the future, because I need some other thing to like look forward to in case like, cause you're a sick workaholic because it's a healthier way of channel. It's better than me going out and like acting out sexually, acting out with drugs, acting out with spending money. So we call that harm reduction. It is harm reduction. Yes. My workaholism is absolutely harm reduction. No, I have that. And I actually, I've been doing a lot of things to mitigate my slumpiness. I've been doing 12-step work to mm-hmm. mitigate my slumpiness. But that requires like work over and over and over and over again. It just does. Listen, I feel better already. And now we have to begin the complaining. Okay. What would you like to complain about? I would like to complain about, well, I have... I'm a little like, I feel like side of my face is like, looks like I have a stroke or something. It probably does it. Does it look like I'm sagging? A little strokey. I does? No, oh. it doesn't. No. I had to have a fill. Well, I thought I lost part of a crown, but it was just part of a filling. And so I had to go to the dentist this morning and get a filling. And the Novocaine like still hasn't fully worn off. So I feel a little like, oh. That's your complaining? Look- well, that's the beginning of my complaining. And I did it. You want to know how the fucking filling fell out? I was eating, no, (laughs) it was after sex. I was eating a gummy bear in bed, watching like trashy television. You're watching Below Deck? Yeah. (laughs) Watching young people get drunk and have a lot of sex. (laughs) And then I realized like, I don't know. I mean, like that was, you know, like those are, it's kind of like a messy period of time, but also kind of fun. Which? But, you know, I never did the getting drunk thing. Hold on. You're talking about the people on Below Deck? Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't your life. <laughs> I know. What are you talking no, about? I'm I'm saying that, like, it, watching all this Below Deck with, like, these young people and, like, their messy lives. And they're just, like, 
getting drunk, having sex, somebody catches feelings, you know, it's like the same kind of thing over and over. And then I was thinking like, oh, like that looks so fun. You're even talking like the people on Below Deck. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I would. I'm not. Because if I was, I'd be putting on like a weird South African or Australian accent. Can you do it? I really can't. I've watched bits and pieces of that show, but I'm just, I'm too evolved for a show like that. <laughs> look at this. You see this? <gasps> right? Ooh, Dave's Des- thumb does describe not look it. good. It describe looks it. like, uh, it looks like my heel looked a couple weeks ago. It looks like you ripped part of the skin off like several layers of skin off a piece of your thumb was we it went, a blister we went to a wedding right that's a, a, a wedding injury we went to a wedding and it wasn't a proper wedding it was like a dinner mm-hmm. no dancing mm-hmm. nice people good food whatever at the end of it they had this vision that children should play with sparklers now oh. being a conservative jewish person from new york city uh-huh. we don't play with sparklers no. we don't do stuff like that Fire. you know why mm-hmm. yeah because people get hurt and, you know, and there's kids, there's kids with three sparklers in their teeth and their hands. And, and Linda's, Linda's trying to fucking light a sparkler. And, and everything inside of me is hearing my dad's mm-hmm. voice. This isn't probably not a good idea. Right. And, and I, but then I'm trying. But then also, like, I had this draw to the lighter. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't held a lighter in I don't even know how long. Not even to light a candle? Not a cigarette lighter, not like a little shitty cigarette lighter. Mm-hmm. And I longed for the feeling of the, the lighter in my hand. So right. I said, I'll light it for you. I get to the end of the sparklers. I light it. Mm-hmm. And it fucking burst open onto my thumb, burning it. Look at that. It looks terrible. And, and I started, I got really angry and I got, I got so mad that I was participating in this stupidity. Right. And the three and four year olds were fine. fine. And somehow <laughs> I fucking burnt my shit up and and then linda got mad at me that i was so upset about this thing and i had to go and then um and i was such a a a precious flower i'm burned i need help come help me like how could this happen to me and then (laughs) like a teenager went inside and found the kitchen staff who came out and she (laughs) said that doesn't look that bad and she took lavender oil mm-hmm. and put it on the burn mm-hmm. and lavender oil like cures burns oh, who knew I, she did <laughs> it was remarkable because i don't like <clears throat> lavender i have this thing about it mm-hmm. when i was when i was uh living in california and kicking dope yeah. repeatedly my girlfriend at the time read that lavender creates a real mellow mood kind of thing so she filled our house with lavender and then that just reminds you of kicking dope yeah it just it doesn't i don't like it anymore Mm -hmm. but the fact that a lavender oil solved my wound was good that is good i like that i hate getting burned and I Who, nobody likes getting burned. Some people are into it, right? I don't burn I, me kind of thing, right? Right. Like I don't like I don't like getting burned. All right, we have choices. Okay, we're actually I'm just gonna do this one. This is an LSD story from Travis Maloney. Okay, I'm gonna read this note. Um, hey Dave, the email below the line in this paragraph has been sitting in my inbox for about six months. I finally recorded the story that I was going to share. Shit gets real busy for me during growing season here in Wisconsin. Recovery for me right now is going well. The next step for me is quitting smoking weed. I've seen the writing on the wall, and if left to my own devices, if money were not an issue, I would smoke weed all day, every day. I hear you. I'm definitely going to be looking for some support. 
I am planning to attend uh, some dopey Zoom meetings once my schedule slows down in November. Just wanted to reiterate my gratitude for you, for the show, and for the Dopey Nation. Let me know if you're going to put the story on an episode. <laughs> he doesn't listen to the show. I'm pretty good <laughs> at keeping up with current Dopey episodes, but occasionally I'll fall behind. Oy vey, I'm adding another PS. Will your family eat honey? I have a beekeeping practice as well, and I'm finished harvesting honey for the year. I'd be happy to send you a jar. I'd also take trades for Dopey stickers too. What, I thought you wanted to give me a jar. <laughs> anyway, oh, here we go. Now, now it's, this is another email and then the voicemail. Right? Okay. Uh, I finally made it through because we were supposed to read under the line and I just read over the line. But I think oh, that's good right. to know what yeah. Travis is going on with. I actually just looked at him on Facebook. Travis is a serious fucking hippie. Serious like rainbow big, gathering. Big old hippie. Fucking burning man. Right. Hippie with dreads and stuff. I finally made it through the deaths of Chris and Todd and chronologically listening to all of the episodes. Those were some incredibly difficult episodes to listen to and multiple times while listening through them and subsequent ones, I cried for not only Todd and Chris, but for those close to me who I've lost to addiction, the most recent which of which was in March of this year. I think you honored them both greatly by doing what you do today, and I so appreciate this community that you've created. I definitely didn't create it. It definitely created itself out of this amazing podcast that I've been a part of. But, but that's the butterfly effect of what you did, right? All right, just relax. All right. <laughs> it's been really impactful in my own recovery, and I now found myself listening to Dopey every chance I get. I only found recovery at the end of 2020 and after 15 years of chaotic and destructive use. I'm currently approaching six months clean of everything except for cannabis and cigarettes. I attend weekly meetings with the Yellow Balloon Group associated with Ween. Awesome. And am active in their Facebook group. This has been really helpful for me, and I've found a wonderful and supportive group of people to be in fellowship with. I'm in grad school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy. Whoa. Studying psychoactive pharmaceutical <laughs> investigation, both because I've always been fascinated with drugs and because of renewed interest among the medical community in studying the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I've certainly self-medicated before using psychedelics for a touch of the old SMI, and I think there might be something there in studying these molecules more closely. I concur, doctor. Beyond my life that involves recovery and drugs, I manage a half-urban educational farm in Madison. I love the praying mantis hatching in the house story, by the way, and have two kids, eight and one, so I have plenty to keep busy with. In honor of my friend Steve Z, who just passed due to a drug overdose, I've attached a voicemail of the time where Steve's saved Travis a trip to the hospital and or jail after he lost his shit on LSD in Denver. Hey Dave. Hey Dopey Nation. This is Travis from Wisconsin. I'm calling in to share an LSD story involving myself and my friend Steve. Uh, Steve was an opiate addict and he passed away of a drug overdose in March of 2022. So I wanted to share this story involving me and Steve, uh, not only because it's funny, uh, not so much for me, but also to honor my friend Steve. So we had tickets to see a run of String Cheese Incident shows at Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado, probably early 2010s. And um, so 
me, Steve, and a few of our other friends were uh, driving out to Colorado from Milwaukee. Our first destination uh, was Denver. And it takes about 17 to 20 hours to travel to Denver from Milwaukee by car. Uh, this was a time where I had an Adderall prescription, quite a lot of Adderall. I think I was on like 90 milligrams per day. I had both the regular Adderalls uh, and the XRs. So we we just drove there in a straight shot. I should say Steve drove there the 17 hours out there. We were just, you know, railing Adderalls, chain smoking cigarettes and weed. Um, and so we get out there to Denver and our uh, first destination, me and Steve had tickets for a uh, pre-party show. So the plan was uh, me and Steve were we'd drop our friends off at a bar, uh, drive over to the show. Uh, we were going to see the show and then go pick our friends back up and head to the spot where we were sleeping. But as you'll find out, uh, things did not go to plan. So... Steve and I got over to the venue, I think it was at like the Fillmore in Denver or something, and this was a time in my life, my I think I was like 19 or 20, where I was engaging in a lot of drug-seeking behavior before shows. I went to a lot of shows, and I was doing a lot of psychedelics, so I was looking for something to take before the show. And I found a guy uh, whose buddy had some LSD, but he wasn't there yet, and so we had to wait. I was willing to wait, and eventually dude shows up. Um, he busts out his L, which is on paper. It's a white white sheet, non-perforated, what we would refer to as white on white. And the problem was here that the guy didn't have his scissors. There was no scissors in sight. So uh, this guy offers to rip, just rip me off a piece of the sheet with his fingers. And I said, sure. You know, what could possibly go wrong? Um, I'm not sure how big it was, but, um, you know, we took it, get in the show. Uh, about 45 minutes to an hour later, start coming up pretty hard, tripping pretty hard. Uh, we were watching the show. It was good. Made it through the first set, and I went out uh, during set break and smoked a cigarette, and that was fine. And then I came back into the show. Second set started. Uh, I found myself in the lobby. Uh, I was probably one of the only people in the lobby, and at this point, I was, like, tripping very hard. Um, and at this point, I decided to leave the show for an unknown reason. Uh, there was no re-entry, so once I stepped out the front doors, that was it. So I stepped out the front doors, uh, and that's really the last thing I remember for maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute. Um, when I came to, um, I, I was outside of the venue, I looked over at the smoker section and everyone was just kind of like staring at me like slack jawed or with a look of surprise and in putting the pieces back together a little bit, um, I, I think I was maybe walking around in circles and yelling and screaming uh, and this I've this has happened to me before so this is why I think that's maybe what happened. Uh, in any case, this woman comes up to me, she starts getting in my face and saying that I'm going to get arrested and freaking out, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and this lady really freaked me out, uh, and I didn't really know how to react. I kind of froze, and then very shortly thereafter, uh, a squad car pulls up with its lights on. Not sure if they were there for me, but there's a pretty good chance they were. Um, and at that very moment, Steve, God bless his kind soul, puts his arm around me and starts walking me down the street. Um, 
one thing I remember from this moment is just looking down the block into Denver and just seeing the sidewalks and the buildings just like rolling and waving. I saw an AutoZone sign and I remember thinking, oh, it's only AutoZone, we're trapped here. Uh, but Steve eventually led us to an, an alleyway and this alleyway was kind of funny. Uh, it had a big yellow dead end sign and a large HVAC system, which was powering some building. Uh, both the dead end sign and the HVAC system freaked me out. Uh, the HVAC system made very loud sounds, which which made me terrified. And uh, the dead end sign also had some significance. I, I really fixated on this dead end sign. And in my state of mind, I thought that I tripped so hard I died. Uh, I was able to view my family mourning and 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 all these things, and uh, ultimately the HVAC system snapped me back to reality. And what had to happen was Steve called our friends who were at the bar. They were now more sober than us, so they took a taxi over to the van uh, and then came and picked us up. We safely got to our destination, and I didn't end up in a jail cell or uh, the emergency room, which was good. Um, you know, we made it to Red Rocks, we saw the shows, did a bunch more drugs, and uh, that's sort of how the story goes. Um, I have more LSD stories. I seem to have a hard time taking LSD in Denver. I think it's the altitude, but be happy to share more stories with you. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. All right, what's your favorite part of that voicemail? Well, the thing that I kept getting distracted by was, uh, well, first of all, I mean, just this idea of like how many times in my life I did something stupid like this too, or like, it just like, that's just the whole concept of like, just taking something that like somebody gives you who you don't know. I love that part. <laughs> it's, it's like such a crapshoot, right? But, uh, and also, I mean, obviously like the time that I was doing it, it was a slightly different world in terms of like, I wasn't worried that there was fentanyl and something. But the other thing I was thinking is like, this is why I never did like other than ecstasy, I'd take ecstasy and like be out in the world. But like, I would not take mushrooms or LSD. Like I wasn't the person who's like, let's go to Disneyland on LSD. And I had a lot of friends that did. We used to eat LSD and go to the aquarium in Coney Island, yeah. ride the F train to Coney oh. Island, hang out at Coney Island, no. see the animals. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking Sounds tanks. like the worst it, idea. It was so good. Like I, I was the. We were totally the people, and I was one of them yeah. who would take acid and just go out and about to frolic in the universe. I liked being home, or it didn't have to be my home, but just like someplace like controlled, private, like controlled, contro like controlled. I mean, I that never, really surprises me about you. Ask Aaron Carr. Well. It doesn't, that doesn't, really. it, it doesn't, doesn't mean, <laughs> it doesn't mean that I never had to like, I, I did have like one incident where a friend of mine, a friend of mine and I, we took acid and then we're like, oh, like we felt it, but it was really weak. So we did like a second tab and then it kind of all kicked in and her mom called and we had to drive to her mom's house at like nine in the morning. I was, I, it was literally like, I heard like the Super Mario Brothers, like music in my head, like, doo, 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 like as I was driving. Can you sing the Super Mario Brothers song? Oh. Can you do it? Very good. Keep going. It's pretty good. I'm surprised. I was into some Super NES. All right. I'm impressed. And then it was like, then I got an, I got a PlayStation and I was all about like Street Fighter and when were you Crash when, Bandicoot. Who are you that you play these video games? I play them, but like... By yourself? Sometimes, like a lot of times by myself. Like, How I, old were you when you were playing video games? When did this stop? Like, 
I mean, this was like teenager into like early 20s. Maybe this is a real misogynistic take, but I don't think I've ever met a woman who played video games. Really? I mean, my daughter plays Roblox, but uh that and and that's oh, I, it. I think a lot of You know, I went to I went to right? I went to Ithaca College, right? Mm-hmm. And uh I went to orientation at Ithaca College. And um I met this girl mm-hmm. named Stacy and I I like fell in love with her. And then we went and we played Street Fighter 2 mm-hmm. together. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a girl of my dreams. Right. And then uh, I wound up probably going to Ithaca because of her. Right. And she barely talked to me. <laughs> but that's what cinched it for you. Oh, man. It was it was like it was like true love for oh, me. It was it was I mean, I like- she wound up having she wound up sleeping with a lot of the guys who would go see the string cheese incident. If you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I do know. What you're and saying. I wasn't one of those right, guys right. at the time. I was like outcast. But then I wound up sleeping with her, cheating on my girlfriend years later. Oh. And I didn't last long. Wait, this was, a, this was like the one time you cheated on somebody. I probably cheated twice. All right. I cheated once in high school and this time. Okay. I only knew about the high, the high school one is the one I'm thinking of. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So She cut my hair. I went up to her apartment. Mm-hmm. She gave me a haircut. Mm-hmm. We had sex and I literally lasted like 30 a, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> after years of I'm wanting like, this thing. It's one of the things I think about before I go to sleep at night. <laughs> that, that you didn't do the job right. <laughs> yeah. It's something that I consider every once in a while. The thing that stood out to me in Travis's um, voicemail is the way he described his uh, his acid, his blotter as... He's like, white on white. it's what we call white on white, yeah. which was like a big Kandinsky painting. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Kandinsky's white on white. So I love that he says that. Um, anything else you get, to, you take away from this voicemail? Um, oh, I, that's a lot of Adderall. <laughs> right. He takes a lot of railing the Adderall. When's the last time you snorted Adderall? I've never snorted Adderall. We're going to say that before I came over. <laughs> no, no, I've never snorted Adderall. I've only, I never took Adderall recreationally. I only have taken Adderall in recent years with my ADHD diagnosis as directed. And I take a very, I take like five milligrams. I feel like I took Adderall once in my life. I did. I was the most brilliant I ever was mm-hmm. on it. And then I forgot everything that happened and went away. Um, <laughs> so we have... Your friend on the show this week. Yeah, a new friend. So I met Hannah through Amy Dresner. Dopey Dress. Uh, she connected us. Amy told me that her friend wrote this book and she wanted me to read it. And she said, would you be interested in doing um, an event with her in New York? And I was like, for Amy Dresner's friend, absolutely. And then I read Hannah's book, Strip, which is really just a really beautiful, moving book. Really beautiful book. Yeah. And then, and then how did she wind up here? Because <laughs> this is where this is, this is a very disturbing part it's of the story. It's not disturbing. Amy. Luckily, had, Amy doesn't listen to Dopey. Amy asked me, she said, I want Hannah to go on Dopey. Can you ask Dave or should I reach out to him? And I said, I could do it. I that's said, a, I that's, that's a very, very. Uh, because I was already doing the event with her and like, and I had just read the book and I thought it was, I was a good I book. was going to say, how dare Amy Dopey Dresner, not ask me herself. She's got a lot. She's been having a lot going on. She's juggling stuff. All right, shout out, shout out to Dopey Dres. She's not listening, but shout out to to Amy always. Amy's definitely <laughs> not. Amy doesn't even listen to the show she's on. No. <laughs> she doesn't listen to any of it. But uh, shout out to Dopey Dres. Uh, 
Hannah came over. We all, she also did a daily reflection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she promoted the fuck out of her daily reflection. That's awesome. Now my friends think I'm a weird, like, Bible person. Because it's, it's like all God shit. It's like, shh, you don't need to tell anybody that I'm doing the daily reflections, Hannah Sward. You know what I'm saying? Oh, right. Because you don't really promote no, it. I on don't Facebook do shit. I'm, no, but right. she like tagged me in it. Not, Not dopey. Show, right. So like all my friends are like, wow, Dave really is into daily reflection right. stuff. And it's like, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> and like, meanwhile, I've done 350 daily reflections and no one knows about it. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I've been <laughs> undercover. Um, You're almost at the end. We're so close. And people stopped watching it now. By the way, we're going to record a daily reflection. Oh, I was going to say, do I get to do one last one? Well, let's hope it's the last (laughs) one. Anyway, here she is straight from, you know, she's Canadian. Yes, I know she's Canadian. I didn't realize. She lives in L.A. now. I never would have let her do the show if I had known. (laughs) I never would have. Because she's so nice. Just Canadians, man. Like, I don't think... Have I had another? I had that hockey player, Theo Fleury. Oh, yeah, Fleury. Yeah, very Canadian. Very Canadian. Trey Canadian. Yeah. Anyway, Hannah's my, Hannah Hannah. is my favorite Canadian that we've ever had on the show. Shout out to Theo Fleury. No disrespect. (laughs) C'est bon. Hello. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I am sitting at my father's apartment with Hannah Sward who is a friend of Amy Dresner and Aaron Carr and a writer and a woman in recovery. Her book is called Strip. And here she is. And you look like a cowgirl. She's wearing some sort of like cool, <laughs> nudie-inspired cowgirl shirt. And, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I was going for the cowboy look. <laughs> cowgirl. Yeah, you pull, <laughs> urban cowboy in New York. Yeah. It worked out. Yeah. And I was, just, I was just making fun of her for being Canadian. So what were you about to say? Well, I find that really refreshing because when I moved to Los Angeles, people said, oh, you're Canadian. Canadians are so nice. And I was, found, I was very resentful at that. I said, well, we're not. I'm not. Because I kind of thought it was a put down, like so nice and gullible and, you know, we'll push over. That's the way I heard it. And so kind of like, hmm. So thank you <laughs> for being. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I thank I, you for your prejudice. I resented Canadians as a waiter because I felt like they didn't tip enough. But that wasn't the issue. The real issue was that they weren't aggressive enough to tell me what they wanted, and I felt like I was disappointing them all the time. Oh well, that is a problem. That that is a problem. Now I have a resentment toward Canadians because <laughs> so. you, you someone needs to tell you what they want. Yeah, you need to be direct and say, yeah, spaghetti with no sauce or just like not, yeah. Well, mess I wor- around with it. I worked in a Jewish deli for years, and I and I could have my way with Canadians, which was a nice because they would also take abuse very well. They enjoyed it, <laughs> you know. Com- a very complicated relationship. I know, I know, I know, I do. Well, let's pretend I'm not dual. <laughs> no, it's okay because you 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 feel okay that I have this relationship with Canada. I have a lot. I mean, I'm also impressed with Canada. They do a million great things in terms of like taking care of their population and whatnot, maple syrup and other stuff. <laughs> oh, well, maple syrup, yeah. French people, it's all happening up there. <laughs> now, your book is very beautiful. It's called Strip. And um, th- it's funny because we have writers on dopey all the time and usually the drugs come out like right away mm-hmm. and i'm like i was like i was getting concerned because i was on page 100 <laughs> and i was like she hasn't done drugs yet <laughs> yeah. but you did grow up in a seriously interesting boat it was described as bohemian which it was because your dad was uh 
a poet and a writer and, and, and you, you got basically taken away, separated from your mother when you were two, which mm-hmm. probably informed your own addiction. I think so. I, I think so. It lended itself to it. And I think that uh, the way you write is just like very beautiful, poetic vignettes that like just, you know, they're, they're, they're quick, but then they kind of resolve in your head and you've experienced something. And uh, how, like the way you talk about longing for your mother as a little kid, like that never kind of left you, right? No, no, it, it never did. And I think that longing... I mean, the drugs were certainly a part of trying to escape that longing, very uncomfortable feeling, that longing that's never filled. Yeah, and just to back up a moment, all those wonderful things he just said about my book, I, I'm paying him to say that all. <laughs> Not nearly enough, though. <laughs> Not nearly enough. <laughs> the thing about the book, I, I'd say the the feeling in the book that's the most, that spoke to me is this loneliness like there's this loneliness in the book and I could really relate to it because my, like you're always like you're missing your sister and you want to be with your sister and everything will be okay when you can be with her. Nothing else will really matter. And like, and I, I don't know exactly the nature of codependency, but I think there's a lot of you know, codependency in there. And then you were also, when you went back to school, you were talking about attachment theory. Mm-hmm. Like how does attachment theory play out in terms of that? Because, and you can educate me on attachment theory too. Well, one, when I, when, I mean, when I was, was studying attachment theory, I was on meth. So my memory is not the best of that and my take on it. Fair however, <laughs> yes. however, I was very interested in it. And for me, it was like she was my survival and that I didn't exist without her. She was my everything. So when I'm like when I with her, it was like I just followed exactly what she was doing. And, and that enmeshment, I think attachment, you know, especially with my mother having left when I was two, it was like there was nothing to hold on to. And I just had this image, it's always stayed with me, of being in a crib and crying and like the, you know, arms going up to, to nothing, nothing to hold on to and that terror and that terror of dis-ease and, and the loneliness and the desperation. And my sister, when I would see her once a year, every every July, we just like ran to each other. She would cling on to my leg when I would go back to Canada to live with my father, you know, crying at the airport, clinging on to my ankle as if I was going to war or something. And when we did finally get to live together, we just, we just said, fuck you to everybody. I mean, we, it was just no, nothing else. No one else mattered. We were real hellions. And was she... And, and did she have a similar experience as a kid that, that you did in terms of like, because your mom is a trip, mm-hmm. you know, like I understand a, a new thing you're working on is my mother's men, which should give, which should give like the audience. I mean, like I've never read anybody describe their mother like that. And I don't mean it in a negative way, yeah. just matter of factly that your mother, she slept with a hundred men a year. Yeah, she she did. She said that was a very good year. Uh, <laughs> she said well, it was a hundred. That was a good year, you know. <laughs> uh, That's an interesting situation, right? To have your mother be 
you know, permiss. I don't know if promiscuous is a word that's judgmental. Like mm-hmm. I, it's not meant to be, or be a woman that's with a hundred men in a year. You know, it's <laughs> like it's like it sets up an experience for you how things are supposed to be or not supposed to be. And I know now your mother's settled down with some nice man, and 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 she's become the mother that you always wanted. But when you're a kid, you see her only in in July, right? And you right. know about all these men. And when you became a teenager, you would see them. How how did it inform you as a, as a young girl? I, again, it was my sister and I in the summers. I really, my sister and I have been talking about this over the years. We're like, we just don't remember where mom was. And what I do remember, though, is her washing her beautiful blonde hair and letting it dry and just laying on the bed waiting for her lifeguard boyfriend to call. Marco. Marco. (laughs) Marco, the 26-year-old lifeguard. And what really uh, stayed with me and really scared me over the years as I grew up was that desperation and the panic. I felt that panic from her with the running from man to man and always needed to be with a man. And I did not want to be that way. Not so much because of the men, but because of the feeling that that evokes and the feeling that I sensed from her of not being able to be with herself and nothing would fix that. Well, how did how did that develop in you uh, in terms of like, because you're not the classic dopey, dopey guest that's smoking weed when they're 15, becomes right. this ridiculous stoner, wine, you know what I mean? Like it's not that story, which is interesting to me. But so how did you deal with needing to go from thing to thing? Because it, it wasn't really evident Mm-hmm. In your early, you know, your teen years, for example. I mean, also, just we have to talk about it that you were traumatized. You you were mm-hmm. you were raped and kidnapped when you were how old were you? Six. Six years old. You know, mm-hmm. I have a four-year-old daughter and a twelve-year-old daughter. So to read that is very painful, scary, uh, enraging, and uh, and that you had to live with that. You know, the the passage in the book. I got, I mean, they, they, they quoted it in the, in the thing and I, I should just read it because it's, it's just so scary. It's really, really scary. And this is from Strip. I spend so much time alone. I hit, I hide under the front porch and watch the cherry blossom petals fall to the ground. Alina is at art class and dad is in India. I like to walk to the park, step in puddles with feet bare and red sandals and feel the water between my toes. Today, nobody is in the park, not even Emily. Her mom would not let her go today. So you went to the park alone. Mm-hmm. Nobody took you because Alina was in our class at six. Right. That's my memory of it. Yeah. So scary. I swing on the swing with my doll and go so high. A man in a brown car parks across the street under a beautiful tree that has not lost its leaves. He watches me, waves for me to come over. I keep swinging. He waves again. I get off the swing, walk toward him, hold my doll tight. I am in his car. He tells me he is bringing me home. But he drives me so far and my feet are cold and I start crying. He stops the car at the end of a street in front of a yellow dead end sign. And that was before he rapes you. And and you're six and now you have to live with this for your whole life. And, and your father is a, a spiritual seeker. 
and he's had all these gurus and stuff and he marries this Russian lady who doesn't even does she ever call you her stepdaughter? She called you her sister when she marries him. She does. I mean, she writes me letters now and stepmother and she just didn't want to be Stepmom. She didn't want to be a mom. She, right. she wanted to be young. Right. And then you come home, the cops bring you home, and she, she, how does she deal with it? She was very upset. She was angry. And I, I remember going to the cop station, and she was, you know, they, I guess they had called her in the art class. I'm not sure how they got a hold of her. And we went around in the cop car looking for this man, which was very, you know, frightening because he said if I told anyone, he would kill me. And then she was, she was, she was, probably scared I'm not sure but she was not happy about that so the internalization that I did something wrong so it was just not talked about and then I started having nightmares and yeah and that never went away it the nightmares the nightmares went away after I was taken to the hospital often they did wires and glue in my hair that's my memory of it I'm not sure what that you know I get testing brain waves and at some point they went away I don't know what they were doing to my head, but I remember the lollipops. <laughs> wow. Do you think it wasn't electroshock, though? You don't think so? You no, don't, I don't think, think they were so. they were shocking the mem- the trauma out of you? No, I just remember that They're taking me from school in the middle of the day, and they're like, "You have to go to sleep now." I'm like, "I'm going to sleep." <laughs> you know. But it's. I mean, and then and then they had this horrible babysitter who molests you. Like, how old were you with that one? Nine. Yeah, it's like. And then my first thought is you're the most unlucky person in the world. But my second thought is how many people has this happened to? Yeah. And I'm not blaming your stepmother or your father, you know, because it was a different time. And and we hoped that children would be safe going to the park. But I don't let my kids do anything because like any moment some horrible person shows up and then, you know, you have a lifetime of, of blaming yourself for something horrific, which you should never have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is different now. And I agree. I mean, unfortunately, I hear so many stories from both men and women who experience, you know, child abuse in that way. And I also think, especially, I don't know if it's, well, no, I won't say it's artist parents, but, you know, parents who are very occupied with what they're doing. And I guess that's a whole other thing. Self-centered parents who are like, you know, pursuing flights of freedom or podcasting or like, what if I'm one of these parents? (laughs) Like, it's like, but it's like, basically it's like, hold on to your children and be as careful as possible because it's very scary. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And also, I mean, I do see, you know, you said that was the unluckiest, you know, person. And I also see that I'm also very lucky that I, that I am living. Of course. He didn't, you know, and you're healthy and you wrote this great book and you're sober and like there's a million good things. And I only say that because it's two traumatizing, horrible things that happened to you, you know, when you were a child. And, and, and yeah. I feel for you, you know, and I don't feel I don't feel sorry for you, but I, I it's like it's 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 a lot and it's a lot to experience as a reader. But also like every addict has an origin. Yeah. And, and, and yours has these very, very bright, horrible moments in them. Also, like, and yeah. in between the two, you're shuttled between your families. You're, you're, there's horrible shit between your dad and your stepmom, <laughs> and you have to go from spot to spot with these women. Like, and your your dad's girlfriends were all, like, not nice. No. And it's like, it's like, and it's funny how it's the luck of the draw. Yeah. It's like one of them could have been super kind. I know, you know, it's, 
when my uh, my father's fifth wife passed about five years ago, and he fifth became, wife. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's that clear in the book because uh, I couldn't go into all the marriages. You would just been a really really extra long book. <laughs> to it could be my, my father's wives and my mother's men. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's two chapters in the book. One's my mother's men and one's my father's women. And I can definitely expand on both of those in another book. <laughs> However, yeah, the woman that my father was involved with after my my step stepmother died, the fifth one, she was the woman that was like, we, we love each other. Was that the Miriam lady? No. Miriam turned bad? Well, Miriam... I mean, I was just happy that my dad was with a woman because I felt like I could go do my thing then because I was unhealthy in that way. Miriam, she wasn't, yeah, I mean, she she was, you know, in her 50s, she didn't want a, a you know, a She wasn't old. particularly good to you either. Well, she she was, but she just, you know, she had her had, had her kids already. And, and she, when, when you say you just wanted your father to be with a woman so you could do your thing, mm-hmm. what that meant was your father had been with all these different women and then when he wasn't, you kind of felt like you needed to be there for him in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the caretaker. And I realized that that's not the ideal situation looking back. Not particularly healthy, but that was definitely my role. And then you, what's the first time you used drugs? Probably in Santa Cruz in high school, like maybe hashish or something. You know, Santa Cruz is very... Hippie town. Hippie town. (laughs) I I expected more beachy Santa Cruz stories. (laughs) You didn't live that Santa Cruz fantasy at all, huh? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I do remember, I don't think it's in the book, but I did acid. I was taking a guitar class in, I think, 11th grade. Probably the first time I did. That was maybe the first time I did drugs. And I just was doing it to try and impress a guy in the class. We did it together. It didn't impress him. He wasn't impressed. No. <laughs> what did the the thought, because you wind up being a very prolific drug taker, but it takes a long time. So yeah. like, what was the thought when you first used and why do you think you didn't just jump in with two feet? Mm. It did take a long time. I mean, in, comparatively, when I hear people's stories, because uh, I really didn't, like I, be, I started, I tried crystal meth for the first time when I was 24. And I'll tell you why I didn't, I didn't jump in because my sister and I, we did crystal meth. We were stripping at the time at the gentleman's club. And this girl, Athena told us, we asked her how she kept thin because we were, you know, a little curvier than the other girls. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, lipo and meth. So we like, well, let's try meth. And uh, you tried lipo too though, right? Oh yeah. 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 And then we got muffin tops because we kept eating and we're like, well, now we have muffin tops. Now we're really, now we have to do meth to get rid of these muffin tops. And uh, <laughs> it's like, it's, and so we did that and we did it for 30 days and we didn't lose any weight. So I don't know what it was we were snorting, but we didn't lose weight. So that was why I didn't continue on, which I don't know if that was really why. And it didn't take for my sister. She's not an addict. But I, I don't even mean that. I mean, when you did acid. And you were like, it's like, were you like, I like, did you like it? Like, what was the reaction to it? Did it freak you out? Was it not that big a deal? Like, how did you respond to it? Wasn't that big a deal. And then like, you go to Chicago, basically, soon Mm -hmm. after that. And like, I'm reading this book, right? Yeah. And I know that you're going to wind up doing sex work. I'm I'm aware that that's going (laughs) to happen. But I don't know where, when, why, or what. And then you're looking for a job. 
mm-hmm. you're looking through the fucking classifieds and you're like, okay, you get $3,000 an hour or whatever it was <laughs> if you do this. But you hadn't really been with too many men. Mm-mm. Sex was not a big part of your story. Mm-hmm. So what drew you to it? Was it just the money or what was it? Well, one, so I was in Chicago and I knew I was going back to college. So I had a number of months. And I got a job at 20, it wasn't 24 hour fitness, but something comparable to that. And I was wearing, you know, those little uniforms with the blue spandex at the time. And then this, you know, polyester white shirt and collared. Not that any of that matters, but anyway. I I, I appreciate the description. (laughs) Yeah. And they, you know, my, I was supposed to be there at six in the morning. I'm not a morning person. And plus it was like, I don't know what minimum wage was then. And I was- It was very low. (laughs) Very low. And I stood there you know, for my first day of job. And I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I, I can't work. <laughs> and uh, I went home and I don't know why. It was a fast way to make money. You know, I needed to make it for college, but I also don't want to say I did it for college because there's a lot of people that grow up and they don't have the financial support of their parents. and They don't choose to be like, oh, I'll be a call girl. And you didn't do it for drugs. Right. I didn't. Right. I know when people are like, well, you did all that for drugs and you stole and you did, you know, prostitution for drugs. I'm like, well, actually, actually I didn't. Like yeah. I was doing a panel recently in Chicago and it was about, you know, the other woman I was doing it on. That's why she was doing it. And I, I would like to blame on the drugs, but it wasn't. Well, I think this is interesting because there's so much stigma attached to doing prostitution or I don't even know the words I'm supposed to use. So forgive me. me. No, same. Uh, (laughs) You know, to, to get paid for sex, which I, again, I don't have any judgment in it. And I'd imagine it's mysterious. It's dangerous. It's close to the trauma that you, that you experience. So maybe you're trying to control the story where you get paid instead Mm -hmm. of you get hurt and it's easy money and you don't have to do something that's boring, but it's like, it's scary, you know? And it's also like uncomfortable. And like a lot of those stories, like a couple of them were nice. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like some dude that you liked that like had books and stuff like that was nice, but like there's a couple of them that weren't so nice. Right. And, And when you first, do you like, do you recall being, you were 23? I was 19. 19. Do you recall like the first time you did it, like how scared you were? What was the feelings? I was so uncomfortable and I was supposed to act like I had been doing it for a while and I did not succeed. <laughs> I think it may have been the guy in the book that wanted me to talk dirty maybe, or maybe he was the, he was like among the very first. So that's one of my first memories. And I just couldn't, <laughs> I just froze and Fortunately, he was very nice. He was like, well, let's go for donuts. My donut, my favorite donut place. We went in his car and we went to get some donuts. I don't even remember. It was just so, it was so horrible. And I just wanted to pee over and so I could go home and have some, you know. Peace. Peace. I think what you wanted was a Dove bar. I I can relate to a lot of your, what you wanted to do and disassociating about like, what kind of chocolate? Like, am I going to get a milk chocolate or a dark chocolate? Which is yeah. like one of the greatest questions in life. I always answer with dark chocolate though. Right. And I think I cried because they didn't have dark chocolate at the 7-Eleven. And, you know, I was trying, I mean, it wasn't about the guy. It was about the chocolate bar. They didn't have, you know, milk chocolate. And and all you wanted was your sister. How do you pronounce her name? Rilke. Rilke. Rilke but it, that's her, her, not her real name. Okay. Well, her, real, her real name is Dante. She doesn't care. All you wanted was when is she going to graduate high school and we're going to go to Los Angeles to become actresses. Why did you want to be an actress so bad? I don't know. 
That was another thing. I was like, why did she, like, she wasn't, she didn't seem that interested in sex and she didn't seem that interested in like (laughs) movies or TV or theater. (laughs) But I think what you wanted was to be with her and to be safe because the second you were with her, and I could relate to this because I grew up in this apartment and I went to the same school from when I was four till I graduated high school. And I had this group of friends and when I was with them, I felt safe. Yeah. And when I wasn't with them, I started using drugs. And that was my story. So I could really relate to that feeling. And like when you you were like, when I get back to her, all will be well. I will be okay. And and then you get back to her. What was she doing for? Oh, she was dancing. Yeah. She was like stripping. And you were like, I couldn't possibly do that. Yeah. So you went back to escorting and and you were embarrassed that she would find out that you're having sex with these men and then she did find out what did she have judgment no no she didn't and she tried to do it and i i made amends to her about that because i she tried because she didn't know i was sleeping with them well and you, I said, you, well, said, you, you said yeah you lead them on lead them on and then leave how Which, often did you get lucky and they didn't want to have sex there's one scene in the book that actually shares that and it was the one time uh this uh, 80 something year old man at the peninsula hotel which is a very nice hotel in Los Angeles, and huge suite, just sprawling suite. And I remember he just got naked. He had no hair on his body. It was very, I'm not sure why I'm saying that. Uh, <laughs> just, And uh, it just made him, in a way, more naked because he had no hair. Sure. And he, no sex. Uh, he just wanted to look at me naked. And he paid me, I think, two or $3,000 for an hour. I really wanted him to call again, but he didn't. Those are the best gigs, I'd imagine. Those are, <laughs> Those are the gigs you want. Yeah, and I didn't tell the Madame Ava is her name in the book. The deal. The deal. Because, like, you got the money and, and maybe who knows what he said. And I'm sure were, were other uh, the other women that were kind of working with you, were they obviously using or not obviously using? Well, in Chicago, I can't remember. I just remember the bologna sandwiches sitting on the couch with him because it was a very low end. It wasn't a high class service I went with. I went with like $200 an hour, which even in those many years ago was not that much. Well, it was more than the fucking Planet Fitness, you know, polyester $5 an hour shit. Exactly. I got some tuition for my first semester of school. So in Chicago, I, I don't remember the women using drugs. I'm sure they were, but I was just so in my own. I just sat on the couch with them waiting for the call. So I didn't really get to know them. And then in Los Angeles, it was just only meeting with the madame. So I never met any of the other girls. Right. And and it was in Los Angeles that you were you went on a call for a couple and they were like, let's do coke. Mm-hmm. And it numbed you totally out, right? Yeah. But that and then did the coke kind of call your name any in any sort of way? That's a good question, because that was the first time I had done coke. And no, <laughs> I not at all. It freaked me out. I remember being in a 23rd floor high rise. I wanted to jump out the window. And so I was just holding onto the bed, waiting for it to be over. Because you couldn't feel anything. You didn't like the feeling of it. I never loved Coke, but I didn't love meth either. Like when I did meth, I got very uncomfortable. I could use the organizational help of meth. But when I was doing it, I was doing so much heroin that I didn't get organized. You know, and that's the cunning, baffling, powerful part of it is I didn't like meth, but I was addicted and I could not stop. So, I mean, maybe I liked it in sense of, well, you did it, but I really didn't. It wasn't a party. I do remember, though, the very first time I did meth with my sister, 
I remember crushing up the lines on the Formica table in Los Feliz, in Los Angeles, in this kitchen that we had painted black, and crushing those lines and the crystals. And I immediately, immediately loved the ritual. And I remember telling my sister, you go make the beds and the coffee. I don't know why we need coffee. And, and I'll cut this. I'll be in charge of this. And she's like, okay. You know. But in your mind, you're like, I have control over the situation. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, like, I'm not an armchair psychiatrist or psychologist or anything. But how much do you think control played a part in the sex work? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that because I hear that from other women who have been in that line of work. And I hear that often. And that really wasn't my experience. I just didn't feel that control. I felt so shameful and small. And you managed to stick with it for a little while. Yeah. And then I always, I also thought it was interesting how you were, were too embarrassed to dance. Mm-hmm. But how did that change? It changed, well, because I wanted to be with my sister. And I was a terrible call girl. <laughs> and I just couldn't do it. Like, I just couldn't do it or anymore. And so I started serving apple juice because it was at the fully nude uh, dancing place yeah I don't know if those are still the laws but at the time anyway you know fully nude you couldn't have alcohol and uh so I was serving apple juice then I started giving lap dances and I was able to talk to the owners that I ended up dancing the the clubs that I didn't want to dance on stage I only wanted to do private dances because it was more private I didn't want to be I'm not a good dancer so how did you become a, were you a good lap dancer? <laughs> like, how did you, how did you find that, yourself to become proficient at it? Well, that, I mean, I was going to say that wasn't very hard. I mean, that wasn't very hard. Okay. You know? and, and then in the private dances, it's just, you know, dancing for one man. So it also felt like, oh, I'm chosen. I'm not just on a stage. And I felt insecure around these men, especially the young men that came in. I felt unattractive and like, you know, had no no sense of rhythm. And I don't know if this is true or not, but that's how I felt. But you were obviously good that you were doing all these private dances. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I know it sounds stupid, but no. it's like, it's such an interesting line between I can do sex, I can have sex with these men, but I can't dance on stage, but I can do private dances. When you were doing private dances, like you never longed to, to, to make the money that you made prostituting yourself were you like wow this is so much better or were you like I could make more money and I wouldn't have to be dancing in this place what was your your mindset there no I was just so happy not to be doing that that, that work and also because in the beginning with stripping it was a lot of money with the private dances and the lap dances I mean it seemed like I mean my sister experienced this too that certain men were drawn to her a certain class of men even and uh you know for me and maybe this is not politically correct to say, but I remember when the Asian tourist bus came. They loved it, you. They, well, they were like, my name was Claudia. They're like, Claudia's going to do well. And I don't know why, but uh, so I, I did do well in the beginning until, you know, started with the meth, which made me, you know, not quite as curvy, not quite as, you know, not the best look. You lost, you lost too much weight too fast, yeah. but you, and you didn't really, I mean, you did meth with your sister, but you, that stopped fairly quickly, right? Yeah. Why did it stop? Because we didn't lose weight on it, which is insane. So maybe it wasn't meth. It was probably mixed with something. Who knows? But we were, we did it, like I said, uh, for a month and we didn't lose weight. We were in bad moods and we were clumsy dancers. And that was enough to stop. Yeah. We thought, well, this is, we got to do lipo now. 
Right. And and you like that. Yeah, we liked that. We liked the, the effect that it had because we really didn't like our butts growing up. We were very, very upset with our mother for giving us these butts, which now we look at pictures and we're like, what are we talking about? Like, I was watching uh, Showgirls recently. My sister was in it. It's in the book. And we, like, froze on a frame where she's in and it's just her butt is in the in the frame. And we're like, what? What were we thinking? And that was pre-lipo butt. Pre-lipo. And we're like, what the? Well. I mean, not that that was also my butt. <laughs> So, but I we were a little bit delusional. And then I also got, you know, lipo in my arms. I was 24. Yeah. That's what I was, I'm like, why are they getting lipo at 24? Yeah. But, and in my arms. I mean, who does that? Well, drug addicts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> alcoholics, people yeah. with low self-esteem, all those <laughs> yeah. people do that kind of, you know, probably women who dance and stuff who get looked at. I mean, it's a lot. It's a, there's a lot of shit loaded up in there. And then your sister leaves. Yeah. And, and, and you know, gets married and leaves. And that's when the addiction like kabooms. Yeah. I completely fell apart. I was so shameful because, you know, here she was in love and gone off to get married and, and you know, have her life. And I couldn't stop crying. And, and I really think it was a nervous breakdown, whether it was technically called that or not. And my solution was crystal meth. How, how soon did it pop into your head that I, you're like, fuck this, I'm going to do meth? I think it all happened pretty fast. It wasn't even a conscious decision. What happened was I was mem- remember being in California Chicken Cafe and a guy walked in. He looked like he had just been out of prison with these baggy jeans, you know, that walk kind <clears> of, you know. Strutty, 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 strutty criminal guy, yeah. strutty meth dealer walk. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, he had the tank shirt on and, and all the tattoos and the tattoo across his, you know, back that you kind of see the now letters I remember the your, your thought was, I hope he tattoos my name on him. Yeah. That was your thought. Yeah. Yeah. And then he comes over with his croutons and I'm like, it's on. And I rescue him from rehab and we go to Seaway Won't Tell and I start math. And I'm not, I'm, this is not blaming him. It was just, that was what he went to away. Yeah, he wound but, up going to prison, but like for some reason, and, and I really enjoyed the, you know, the beauty of the book, but that dude, the stories that start rolling in there, it's like, it's funny because you're such a gentle soul and your writing is so gentle and you're in this world of sex and, mm-hmm. and still, I mean, even when you talk about it now, it's so obviously like it, it's almost anachronistic or I don't even know if that's the right word, but it, it doesn't go together in, mm-hmm. in my mind. And the way you tell the story is so gentle and it's such a brutal sort of a business. And then same with strip clubs. It's mm-hmm. like, and you're like, and then you meet this crazy tattooed criminal and you go on this crazy meth run. <laughs> and like, are, or do you feel like the same person? Do you change the way you talk? Do you change your affect? Cause you're around like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I say this with all due respect to people like me, scum of the earth types. <laughs> uh, no. So you're, you're quiet and sweet and like, like, <laughs> I mean, that's my take from sitting with you. Like, what were you like once that you're like, you're seeing this rid- ridiculous convict guy yeah. and you're fucking, and you're, and you're doing, you're in the meth world, like with, you know, with orphan kids and mm-hmm. dildos and weird shit at every turn. Like describe, like, I guess, is it not that much different than being in the sex world? Because it's such a different world than the poetry world or the ashram world or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and and maybe growing up a little chaotically, it's like adaptable, adaptable to, uh, yeah, to being in the you know garage with Turtle and Casper, and I I don't know how much I 
changed my personality. Although, I mean, you know, meth, I mean, that definitely changed because I was taking apart doorknobs until, you know, 5 a.m. And, but my, I don't think my innate nature changed. Sure, sure. But being around criminality, like, because were you around such criminality in the, the world of call girling and, uh, and dancing? Or did, it, did the stakes go higher? No, I was not. Although it it is criminal, right, to do prostitution. But it doesn't. But, it's not the same kind of universe as the methiverse kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Give yeah. us a good meth story. Good meth story. Well, I mean, I hate gardening. On meth, I guess I ended up liking gardening. So I really was attached to the bougainvilleas. Those are those prickly bushes with kind of pink or orange flowers, and they have you know thorns. And wherever I lived, it seemed there was bougainvillea bushes. So I remember I was living in Echo Park with my boyfriend. And I remember he, he would go to, you know, deliver flowers. That was his job. And I would, you know, wave and, you know, be in my nightgown. I remember this see-through nightgown. I'd be like, was going to go inside to start my day. And I would see a, a branch. Like, I'll just Let me just pull that branch. And I would be really in the bougainvillea all day. I am not exaggerating. All day, I'd, my mouth would be so dry. I'd have to pee. I feel like I was going to pass out, but I'm like, just one more branch. And I remember this girl, this neighbor, was the only one that ever, ever said, are you on drugs? Right. She came out. She said, are you on drugs? I'm like, no. And she brought me some lemonade. And in all my years of addiction, no one ever said it except for her. And so, I mean, that's not the most gnarly story, but it was very... Like, I just spent a lot of time in the Bougainvillea. So that was the least gnarly meth story in the history of meth stories. I know. The it's, meth gardening story. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, at Home Depot, I loved Home Depot, at, you know, at 3 a.m. in Hollywood. And and then again, taking apart doorknobs. Yeah, my stories are... Well, I mean, I think it, it, it reflects your nature, to be honest <laughs> with you. Like, you have this very sweet nature. What years did you live in Echo Park? I think 2004... I think in the, in the 2000s. Yeah, the 2000s. I lived, I lived there the same exact time. It's crazy. I lived on Lemoyne between Effie and whatever the other street is there. And I lived right there for, for like four or five years. Like exactly. The time. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember that noisy church? No, I don't remember anything. I was on heroin and benzos and methadone. And so I, was, every, I don't remember anything. Like, I, was I remember probably, little bits. Like I remember I would walk down the hill every day to this really shitty candy store. I don't remember what street it was on, but they sold ice cream sandwiches for 50 cents a piece. And I, would, I spent my day going to that store over and over again. Oh, Avelia's. It's like a shitty fucking yeah. little candy store. I was, I, yeah, I had I racked up right quite a bill there with little Debbies and, yeah, and yeah. those same ice cream, the little bunny. Bunny, yeah, yes, yes, bunny. yes, yes. Bunny uh, ice cream. I'm sure we walked past each other. I probably, Isn't yeah, that bizarre? I probably, yeah, I probably, you know, did your garden. No, nobody did our garden. <laughs> <laughs> nobody did our garden. And that uh, is crazy. We lived on the same street as the woman from uh, Six Feet Under. She had this beautiful house and like all, like, you remember that the, the facade was all the bottles? Like she had this facade of like glass bottles on the front of her gate is like really beautiful. Do you have any recollection of this? Because I, you, you talked about the, the, the murals and in town and all of those uh, Mexican grocery stores. And I would pop in and out of there. And I, I was just on my way to the methadone clinic on, on Beverly, whatever Beverly bar that plays. And I was on my way downtown and uh, I didn't do any meth. I only did meth when I lived in North Hollywood. 
uh, with my friend. That would do it alone. Well, I moved to I moved to LA to stop doing heroin, and I started doing meth, and then I, I got on heroin again very quickly. But that area, and you seemed very local, like you were really connected with the neighbors and and mm-hmm. and the hood, and I was not. And your boyfriend never knew you were on meth. No, which is insane. People still are like, are you sure he didn't? I'm like, well, I, no. He, it worked for him and it worked for me. You know, he would watch the Lakers and write his poetry and I'd be in the Murphy bed closet. I pretty much lived in that closet. In the Bougainvillea plans. In the Bougainvillea plans, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I do wish I would, if I had prepared more for this today, I would have created a more gnarly meth story. <laughs> no, if something pops in, just come out with it. But um, in that situation, I felt like, because your dream hadn't been developed. No. You know, you didn't know what you wanted to do. You had no idea. You're doing one thing to the other and you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this or what. And I felt like when you met that guy, something clicked mm-hmm. because like one of the most, I mean, there's so many beautiful things in the book, but one of the most beautiful things in the book is the way you talk about the sound of your father's typewriter. Mm-hmm. And I could just like, what a nice idea, like clickety clack. It just sounds good to hear those, you know, sounds and, uh, and you bought a typewriter for your boyfriend to kind of recreate piece of your life. And it seemed to me that's when the light went on, that you mm. could write. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I was trying the whole time to write. And I'd wake up and be like, okay, today I'm going to write. And then I would be in the closet with the mess. I didn't really think about that. But I think there is some, something to what you're saying. Well, you were, you were with an artist. Yeah. You were you had a journal in your lap a lot of the time. You were in very bohemian Echo Park. You know, it was like it was like that. Yeah. Do you know the uh Warren Zevon song Carmelita? You got to it's like all Echo Park. It's like you got to hear it. Such a rich place. Oh yeah. Like mm-hmm. I wish I had been a little bit more awake for it. And now I go back there and I'm in total uh post traumatic stress. Like I can't walk down. I like freak out. I got lost recently coming back from somewhere and I ended up in Echo Park, and it was it was very strange. I was out there in, in December, and I was scared to death. I wound up going to the AA meeting at the Tropical, whatever cafe. Yes. I was so fucking afraid, you know. Like, and I had six, you know, I had six and a half years clean, and I was like, I need to go someplace, and I went yeah. there. So uh, that's crazy. So yeah. you 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 you're on and off meth, mm-hmm. you know. At that point, had it been what what got you off of it at that point? I don't know. I really don't know because for me, all of those years were a bottom and I was more on meth than not. I was not much of a binge drug. You know, it was just pretty continual. How'd you sleep? A lot of times I didn't. And I loved my, one of my favorite stories is when you go on that retreat, the Zen (laughs) retreat on meth. Yeah. Tell a little bit of that one. So, well, I had gone back to school and one of the courses was, you know, have three, or earn three credits and go to Mount Baldy Zen Center. And I knew that Leonard Cohen had gone there. And I also thought, well, that would be an easy three credits. At the same time, I was horrified because growing up at one point on, on a commune and, and my father really being into meditation, I thought it's the last thing I want to do. But a girlfriend said she would do it. So I thought, okay. And uh, so I did go up to that mountain. And yeah, I, I mean, I I brought my meth with me. You're not allowed to do that, you know. Are you allowed to talk? I mean, of course you're not allowed to meth. What, what <laughs> else? What else are you allowed to do? You're not. Well, you're not allowed to look, look at the the monks in the eyes. 
not allowed to do meth. Right, no meth. No meth, no killing spiders. Right. And no sex. Okay. Ice cream, no ice cream. <laughs> ice cream sandwiches, not allowed. No, no. Okay. no. Okay. So I disobeyed all of those except the killing the spiders. Okay. Yeah. Because there's too many spiders. And, and, you, and you did meth. And the Buddha smiled at you and you said, I can't have the Buddha smiling at me while I'm doing the math. No. <laughs> right. So she turned the picture of the Buddha around so he would not see. <laughs> oh my God, you have a good memory. I don't even remember that. So he would not see Anna snorting no. math on the floor of the retreat. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, I don't have to get up at 4 a.m. I can just stay in my little cabin doing math because no one will know that I'm not at the Zendo meditating. Right. It's interesting to me because I'm thinking about it now. I actually read that part of the book this morning. That's when your mother really comes back into your life in a positive way for the first time. She finally has settled with some guy, some nice rich guy. Thank <laughs> God, you know, <laughs> no. and, uh, and, and it changed you, right? Yeah. It wasn't that kind of inspirational to the end of, of drugs in a way. It was definitely mm. inspirational to the beginning of school. Yeah. God, I never thought about it. You're, you're good. Wow. <laughs> you are. You it's are all happening. You're just all happening. All these connections. All these connections. After all that therapy, I just need to be on dope. Right. And talk I, I know. <laughs> I really, maybe I should change my whole thing here. Because I know what you wrote. You wrote like, oh my God, my mother is finally my mother. Mm-hmm. And this guy, Peter's, whatever his real name is, he's very sweet. And they're like, I'll pay for school. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay. And you're like, I'm trying not. And, and, and they're like, you can get a normal job. <laughs> and and you wind up get getting in the suit that you wore for your uh, for your first high end <laughs> prostitution job to get a, a a job at the law school. Yeah, and you stopped using. Was it torturous to not use? Oh yeah. And were you thinking about it all the time? All the time. And how all did you time. get through it? Well, I started drinking, and I had never really drank before. And I I just and I also thought I don't know I just wasn't much of a drinker. It frightened me so bad when not doing meth then I started picking up the drink and I was like even my friends were like oh you're so adult this is you're having a glass of wine with us I'm like no I know isn't it cool (laughs) and then within two months it was drinking you know trying to control and manage it with you know okay not before five and that's a long time not before three twelve well not before the gym you know no you gotta have a glass of wine or a bottle before you go work out and it just escalated so fast and that was so terrorizing to me because I thought, oh my God, it's going to be another decade then. It's just like the meth. The CVS story is like one of my all-time favorite alcoholism stories. Would you tell that one? <laughs> They're setting the bar really high now. I, take, <laughs> I, know I, I, I like that story. It's just there's something about it like I could see myself in that story. <laughs> I, CVS. <laughs> it's funny because, yeah, I've heard that before about the CVS. Well, I spent a lot of time... For those of you who don't know, in the bathrooms in Los Angeles, I loved bathrooms, apparently, on meth and drinking. And uh, What did you look for in a good meth bathroom? Oh, my God. Wow. It To this day, 12 years later, I still can't walk into a bathroom without thinking, this is a good setup. Right. I, and how about a bad one? Or a bad one. Oh, my God. Yeah. Me, me and my daughter went to Coney Island, uh, you know, in Brooklyn, this aquarium, and we drive back and there's a a gas station in the center of the highway. And, uh, and I had to go to the bathroom and, and my daughter's four and this is not the bathroom to do meth in, you know, or heroin or it's like, it's like you have to just scream, don't touch anything. And it's like, hell. So you, uh, how often were you, were you uh, snorting meth in a horrible bathroom in LA? Very often. Right. So did you, did you not go, did you find the posh ones? 
I would stumble across them. But, you know, when you got to do meth, you got to do meth. So any bathroom will do. And you get stuck in there. Always. Always. Back to the story. I didn't mean to interrupt. No. What was the story? We're, oh, we're about getting oh, to CBS. 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 Yeah. So I was going to therapy at the time. Before therapy, there was a CBS right across the street. And I would, it was, my therapy was like probably at noon. And that's a long time to not drink. I remember going to the CBS often and I'll get a cheap bottle of wine and I didn't like to pay for things. So I didn't pay for it and took it into the you know, employee bathroom there. I would just walk through the doors and sit on the toilet and drink that, the wine and then put it into the, I just remember the, the garbage and, and burying it under the garbage. And I told myself, you're not going to come back and drink that. That will be it for the day. And, and I just, uh, was that the story? Basically. Yeah. Just, just like, stealing wine and drinking it and then but, leaving. Did you ever but, get busted in CVS? No, I got, I did go to jail a few times for stealing, but not at CVS. What did you get caught stealing? Uh, when I was nine for the first time, chocolate bars and ballet type. Yes. <laughs> chocolate bars and ballet. I'm living, living hard. But yeah. when did you get, when did you get locked up for stealing? Uh, but I only went to jail for a night. For what? Clearasil in Miami. I had stolen a lot of other stuff, so it wasn't. But this particular time was Clearasil. It was at Woolworths in I, downtown Miami. And I remember there was a young man, maybe 18. I was 19 at the time. And he was following me around. I'm like, what a fucking jerk. Like, like just. And I kind of had a sense that maybe he was a security guard. But I just was like, fuck you. And I took it. And then he got me on the, on the way out. And I went into the Miami jail for the night. But you didn't get busted stealing the wine. You didn't get busted drunk in the CVS. You didn't get busted. Did your therapist ever know you were drunk? Yeah. My, I had a therapist the whole time I was doing meth. She never knew or she didn't say anything. I did have a new therapist, though, once I started drinking. She, within a couple of months, I remember walking in there and I was already really attached to her. Very and meshed, atta- yeah. And meshed, <laughs> like within two months. And uh, she said, Hannah, we can't do this work if you come in like this. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that she knew. knew. Right. And the next day, I i mean, it sounds so much. And the next day I saw the light. It wasn't like that at all. But she, and I didn't want to lose her. And I knew I had a problem. So that was really the beginning of the recovery. Yeah. That was like, that was about to say, what would you describe your bottom to be? But I guess like your denial was so rich that this woman piercing your denial with her just knowing Mm-hmm. You're like, fuck. And then so so what brought you into sobriety? I mean, that was the catalyst. What made you want to be sober? And how did you know you could do it? And like, were you, oh, wait, we missed the great sugar daddy period, <laughs> the pre-sobriety sugar daddy period. That was really crazy because it was your sister's mother-in-law mm-hmm. who was like, what are you guys doing? Like, don't you know how much money you can make as a dominatrix? Who was at my reading in New York last night. Awesome. Did she know she was in it? Did you read the section from her? <laughs> she had already read it. Right. She's awesome. She. This woman is a Jamaican woman from New York who had, you know, I, I wish the names were real, but she had a, a client n- named Tuna. Actually, she told me last night, she said, honey, you didn't change his name. No way. So that's great. So her <laughs> client was named Tuna. She would whip him and, and cook him dinner and he would pay her rent. Yeah. And, and she was like, and you don't, I mean, like, I think maybe I live like a very like safe existence because I don't hear about women 
do you know, I, I, have you ever read Melissa Phoebos? Yeah. She it. was on Dopey once. And, uh, and her story, like, is, is a little bit similar. But you don't, I don't get to hear these stories. And you certainly don't get to hear about your sister's mother. Like, did you know that was her deal? Oh, okay. yeah. Okay, so you knew. Yeah. So you guys were, like, in this world, and she knew you were in this world. Oh, she encouraged me at Thanksgiving dinners for years before that. She said, you have soft eyes you must be taken care of. Let's, you know, write you an ad to, be, to set that up. And it's not in the book, but even my ex-brother-in-law was part of it. Because uh, it just got too crazy in the book and too many characters. And, but he was my driver for a brief period, two clients. And I remember one particular client in North Hollywood, and he didn't want to pay. And I, wanted, I was savvy enough to ask for the money up front. And... Uh, my, you know, ex-brother-in-law is a large man. <laughs> so he, got the, he got the money. Well, actually, we didn't, we, but we left. And then we went to Whole Foods and got some string cheese and went home. <laughs> yeah, and you felt comfortable again. Yeah. How often did you have to fight for money in all of these different works? Not often because I wasn't, I mean, they, most of them paid up front. And there is one scene where I should have asked for more money because more was involved. No, I remember that story. I remember that story in Chicago. Because you, when we sat down before we started recording, Hannah told me Hannah's very good friends with Amy Dresner, and uh, and Hannah ran into Amy Dresner at the gym, and they had just you know kind of became friends, and Amy was writing for the Fix, and Hannah was like, "Does anyone ever do a story about a sugar daddy, like having a sugar daddy sober versus having a sugar daddy using?" And it's like that was your experience, so you mm-hmm. got sober while you were had sugar daddies. So first, can you can you really define what it is to have a sugar daddy? Because I know my father's listening, and he has no idea what yeah. that means. Well, I mean, it is it's prostitution. Okay, I don't know what the actual. I actually should look up in, in the dictionary. However, for me, what that was was my sister's ex mother in law. She wrote the ad for me to place in Craigslist at the time. And it was for an exclusive arrangement with one man. I think maybe the definition is more like a man taking care of a woman. Right. Right. Just like a sugar mama, sugar daddy. I had two of them. And I got into that because I was working at the law school. Ironically, one Jew and one Arab. Yeah. Which is awesome. (laughs) I wish the Iranian was Palestinian. Then it really would have been next level. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in, in the article I wrote for The Fix, I remember seeing one Iranian and one Jewish Orthodox sugar daddy. I thought maybe that's not right to say. Why? Be- that's what I thought. Because, that- no, no, why would it not be right to say? Because it's violating his Orthodox Judaism. It's outing it just, him. As- I thought it was maybe like politically incorrect to say nah, or something. You have to but, tell it how it goes. But, I, I know. And that was, yeah. But I do remember, yeah, I was working at the law school and it's, you know, I was drinking and it's very hard to work when you're drunk as I'm sure most of you know. Yes. Not only hard, but I, I hated working. My mother and my sister's mother-in-law was, was visiting at the time, and my sister also needed to make money. We're like, well, let's, we need to be back together because we had, you know, she was married and we weren't enmeshed anymore. What could we do to work together? And we thought, well, we could be personal assistants together. So we, we placed an ad on Craigslist to be personal assistants you know, we got replies saying, well, we have personal assistants, but we would like to have sex with you. Sexy. <laughs> That's because you put sexy pictures of you and your sister up. You put a sexy picture of you and your sister and like, we'd like to be your personal assistant. Yeah. And then you're shocked that they want to have sex with you. I know. we. Like yeah. She wore like a, a sexy workout outfit and you wore the sexy secretary outfit is how you oh, described it. Oh, my God. I mean, because it's been so long since I've read the book. So you're bringing this back. I'm like, oh, my, that's right. That makes sense. 
that you, especially one, in Craigslist world, right? The, yeah. You're like, like two hot sisters, scantily clad, <laughs> looking for work. And you're like, I can't believe they wanted us to, to take our clothes off. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not being politically correct right now. No, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, there was a disconnect. Uh, my reason was I was drunk. My sister wasn't, so I'm not sure what her reason yeah, was. Yeah, what's her problem? What's her you gotta problem? ask her what her problem was. Yeah. I gotta call her later. Well, and, we, we, what were we saying? We were talking about uh, about basically oh the sugar daddies. No, but how to because it's in that period that you got sober. Mm-hmm. So, like, what was that that period really about? Like, the thing happened with your therapist. Fucking hated the job, and you, I guess you started really seeing yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, we hear often where I couldn't. I just I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And I don't know what it was that shifted because the whole time that I was drinking and using was a bottom, was all a bottom. So I don't, I really don't know why it was that day versus any other day. And you asked a little bit ago about how did I know when I could do it? I didn't. Every single day was excruciating. I remember having three days sober and it was always that head to pillow. How am I going to get my head to the pillow sober? And I just didn't think I could do it. And, and there was one young man, he had seven days. And I remember him coming up to me and saying, you can do it. And I'll never forget this. This is 12 and a half years later. That that night, I got my head to the pillow, three days sober, and I got to day four because of that guy with seven days. And this is so important for me to remember because it's that outreach of sharing our stories and you just don't know when you're going to, I mean, he probably has no memory. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't remember this, but I remember exactly how he looked. Who he was. Who he was. And what he said and how it affected you. Yeah, that I, hug. I know that, uh, that that phrase, like, how am I going to get my head to the pillow, was, was totally my experience for probably a year. Like, how do I get to bed without using and I would just watch movies. I would go for walks. I would go to meetings. I would do anything to take my head out of my head. Yeah, me too. There was no pink cloud. Every single moment was intolerable. Because how do you go from using and drinking to all of a sudden it's real time? Do you remember the last day you used? I think it was that night of, or you used meth. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, a day in the Bougainvillea. I remember... I had gone, finally, it was like nighttime, and I tore myself away to the restroom in my apartment, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and it really looked like I, like I had been attacked in the jungle, mm. like streaks up and down my arms, just the blood, because I had been wrestling with the vines all day, and up and down my legs, because I didn't dress appropriately for gardening. For gardening, yes. Yeah. I think I, um, I, think I, pa- I didn't pass out, but I was that, that state of, you know, hyperventilating because I hadn't slept in days, I hadn't eaten or drank any water. And uh, that was the last day of using. And you just saw yourself and you were like, I can't, I, I have to, this has to end. Yeah. And the first the first meeting you went to is this place, the Friendly House? It, that was not actually the first. Uh, that was my memory at the time, but it was actually two blocks down. I walked up to this church, to the upstairs, and there was maybe six people in there. And I couldn't say anything. I couldn't stop crying. But I knew I had a problem. And I raised my hand. And people gave me their cards. And I still have those cards to this day. I never called any of them. Right. But you kept the cards. I kept the cards. And it meant something. 
Well, I think in your story, feeling disconnected and feeling alone and, and like showing up at a meeting and feeling, I mean, I showed up at a million meetings and felt totally disconnected. But when I finally felt like the opportunity of connection, the opportunity of being who you want to be, the opportunity of, of not destroying yourself, like all when those things pop up, you're like, wait a second, this is what I want anyway. Like forget about like the weird ideas I had about this. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember just three months before I had been back in Canada visiting my best friend and she had a big book on her on the counter and she was an AA. Can I say that? Yeah, (laughs) you can say anything you want. (laughs) And uh, she was going to a meeting and I thought that was just wonderful, you know, and she was, you know, I was drinking my wine and I opened that book and I saw that word God and I was just like, I'm so happy for you. And I put that back on the shelf and I continued drinking. Three months later, was that much more desperate where that word just didn't matter. I just didn't, nothing else mattered. And I just got, I walked in. Right. It's funny how that goes. And it's like, it's very easy. And I understand when someone's like, oh, I don't really like the idea of God or I don't want to go to a meeting. You're in a cult, blah, blah, blah. I agree with all those things. I just happen to really need it. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, when it, it, when it exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So like, you know, the great, the great cliche is like, you're all being brainwashed, but our brains needed the washing, you know, that great AA cliche. Um, There's a million great ones. Yeah. But, uh, and what, tell the audience about the Friendly House, because I think they would like it. Yeah. Friendly House is, I think it's the first all women's rehab in California. And actually my sponsor heads it now. And it's in Koreatown in Los Angeles. And they have, am I doing like a plug now? I <laughs> know. I think it's, I think people maybe in LA would benefit from hearing about it. And I think it's a cool place. It sounds like something that our audience could benefit from. So it's, yeah. you know, you don't yeah. have to you do what you want. Yeah. <laughs> and I, w- I went there every Thursday night. My sponsor would pick me up and it ended up being a five hour ordeal. I don't think ordeal. That's how it felt like it sure. at the time, like five hours. And uh, she'd pick me up. We'd go to Papa Cristo's, this Greek restaurant. Then we would go to Friendly House. And in those meetings there, we'd sit on the couch and they had the, like those crocheted pillows with, you know, it's going to be okay written on them and Merry Christmas. And then, you know, uh, the stock member stockings on the fireplace all with the all, women, the, right, all the women in right. the house. And watching those women and going to that meeting and watching them clean up and starting to get to know them and because I really hated going there at first and and actually someone reminded me recently that I'd walk into the office and say I don't want to be here I go in the basement that's not in the books I didn't remember that and then I'd wait for the meeting (laughs) hearing these women's stories though and getting to see women come like I remember this one girl she came off from the streets and she had no shoes on it was just like that you know her bare feet and just this young girl just completely wrecked and seeing her come every week and sit in the seat and we began setting up the chairs together and we began sharing our story with each other and we had similar stories and holding one another's hands it's things like that that helped me get my head to the pillow sober right totally and then when did the writing click back in i i knew i wanted to write again it clicked back in when my sponsor gave me direction to write five minutes a day. Did you tell her that you wanted to write? Yeah. 
And she was like, okay, I direct you to write. Yeah. It's so, <laughs> I need someone to direct me to write. You know what I'm saying? Like She said five minutes a day, Hannah. So at that point, I had accumulated enough days that I knew one moment, one day at a time, right? So I, that same thing, one word at a time. And it really was one word at a time. And it still is. Right. Because I'm just getting back into journal writing again. And it's like, okay, last night, oh, I got to write something. So I wrote, you know, it's like New York. Okay, if that's it, that's great. Okay, that's my day of writing. Because you've done it. Yeah. And, and that's what a commitment is, doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So I started writing by not the five minutes. I found it more, for me, it worked better to do two handwritten pages. And I just wrote whatever came out and my hand moved so fast across the page because I was so uncomfortable in myself. Do you still write with the pen or you write, you type, you clickety-clacking? Both. Okay. <laughs> Both clickety-clacking, yeah. And I also heard you're now working with, with prisoners to help them write. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? Well, it was actually when I was doing my ninth step amends and I had a lot of amends because I had stolen for, at that point, 30 years. So, What was the biggest thing you ever stole? Well, money from places. Like what kind of place? Yoga. Oh, you <laughs> yoga stole studio. from the place that you worked? Yeah, yeah, so you, yoga studio. So you had to make the financial amends to them? Yeah. So I had made so many financial amends that got down to the, uh, probably I think the last one, it took me many years. And my sponsor said, I, I think at this point you've made so many that giving back to the community in some way would be more beneficial at this point. So I remember going to uh, Angel Food Project to work in a kitchen and I'm not much of a kitchen person. I didn't feel like I was utilized. Like I didn't. It wasn't your spot. It wasn't my spot. And so I kind of just put it out there. And I remember doing a reading with my father in Northern California. I was talking to this woman who I knew. And she was sharing about this, you know, working with prisoners, incarcerated writers program. And I'd always been interested in the prison system and really just lots of feelings about, you know, the prison system. And so we started talking. And then... I got elected on the board and then I became involved in that. And that was, it began of like a, right before the pandemic, about a year before the pandemic. So the pandemic really shut it down because you couldn't go into the prisons and working with mentees became really complicated because even getting a letter in. So it's just, you know, we just had a board meeting a couple of weeks ago to see what we could, what action that we could take to, to start that again. But the last person that I had worked with was released. And normally you don't work with the ones that are released. But that transition, just like with maybe being in rehab and then getting out, is so critical into integrating back into society. Listen, I think it's awesome. And, and uh, you should get her book. Hannah's book is called Strip. And the cover is very cool looking. Hannah's last name is Swart. What kind of name is Swart? I've never heard that name. Well, when my grandparents came over, it was Swarloff. Okay, that's more, it's more Jewish. Yeah, and then they wanted Jewy. to. Yes. <laughs> it was just Jewy and Jewy. So sward, it sounds like sword, but it's sward. And is there anything else you'd like to say to the Dopey Nation before we finish this beautiful conversation? No, but I just, you are just such a delight to talk to. Oh, thank you. It's just been such an honor to be on this. And I'm looking at your laptop and all these cool stickers on there of Einstein saying Ovey and Dopey Nation. and Yes. Uh, the, yeah, the stickers are well. We before we started Dopey, I started. I mean, it didn't really start. I I, I wanted to start a clothing <laughs> company called Oive, and and nobody wanted the stuff. 
And 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 the guy, my my friend Chris, was like, nobody's gonna buy fucking Oyve shit. And I, I was trying to start a cookie company, and, and he was like, no one's gonna buy that shit. Let's let's do this podcast. And then when we started doing YouTube, the guy, my friend Howie, who helped me do YouTube stuff, he was like, you got to put stickers on the computer because it'll look cool. And I never wanted that many stickers on the computer. <laughs> well, it looks cool. Well, thank you. But thank you so much for coming. It's awesome. And 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 Hannah got to read with Aaron last night. Aaron Carr. How did that go? It was so much fun. And we did it at Book Club Bar of all places. Nice. Kind of ironic. It is ironic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I had never even met her before. And I've just found the authors that I've meeting and other people in recovery so incredibly generous with their time and connecting me with other people. And yeah, and paying that forward is really well, crucial. I think it's like, you know, you're friends with Amy and Amy is obviously plugged in and like, it's, it's, I think, I mean, your book is really great. It's really a beautiful book. So it's like, I think people are smart to, to include you in this stuff. I think it's, <laughs> it's not only for you, it's for them also. And that's how service goes too. You know, you think you're helping somebody, but you're really helping yourself and everybody it's symbiosis. You know, it's the greatest, it's the greatest. But thank you so much, Hannah. This has been really fun and interesting. Thank you. And thank if you, you come so up with a horrible, gnarly meth story, you got to call me and we'll get it in another <laughs> show. Okay. That was Hannah Sward. And the amazing thing about Hannah is that I never fucked up saying her name. Not I, once. I fucked up saying her name the night I met her because I didn't know it was pronounced Hannah. I don't know how I figured it out. I don't know how I figured it out. I, I don't know where I heard her. I heard her on something. Hannah. I don't know where I got it from. Doesn't matter. Um, all right. Ask Aaron Carr. Yes. One of my favorite things that you do on the show is giving your insights <laughs> into the interviews. Yes. My notes. Yeah, I love your notes. <laughs> I even included a little brain exploding uh-huh. personalized emoji <laughs> I like in that. my notes. Yes. Um, okay. So... The first thing, and this is something that, I mean, you said this when you were speaking with her in the interview, and I felt this as well, that one of the things that she captures so beautifully and powerfully in the book is that sense of like loneliness and longing that so many of us who've struggled with addiction have experienced. Yes. Um, You know, in the book, she's got this longing for her mother who's kind of left her high and dry and... And, uh, it, you know, and for her sister and for her sister, everything will for be ever, okay. For all of for so many, everything's going to be okay. Once you and me are together yeah. in Los Angeles stripping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think like, I don't know if I acting was the dream, right? Yes. What was her sister's dream? Cause she even said she doesn't really know why she wanted to be an actress. Her sister, I don't know what her sister's dream was. I think it was, they both wanted to be actresses in LA. They wanted to be famous. Right, right, right. And like right. they were very beautiful yeah. and all that stuff. They wanted to be like shiny and beautiful and yeah. having fun and stuff. Yeah. So what's your next note? So my next note, this is like my my biggest Hold on, before you say note. another yeah. thing, I want to just say, yes. Hannah was incredibly lovely, mm-hmm. uh, so sweet, so vulnerable, yeah. so such a different style dopey guest. Totally. And I think that's worth uh, mentioning. I think so too. And you and I talked about it because, you know, her story is obviously very different from my story or your story. And, and I mean, everybody has a different story, but I think what's interesting about hers is that so much of how her addiction manifested was quietly, if that makes sense. Like, even in terms of like the ways in which she bottomed out and like the things she did when she was on drugs, 
some of them were like, you know, things that didn't make her feel very good, but they were still like maybe not as bombastic. Yeah. As, as a lot of other addicts. And I think that, that the thing that's cool about that is it really gives just like that one more like nuance of like how addiction manifests with people. I mean, there's, you know, she was as addicted to crystal meth as like Amy Dresner. Right. But the way it manifested for Hannah is very different than the way it manifested for Amy Dresner. Right. Absolutely. And that, um, just everything that she did though, like, uh, like sex work, Mm -hmm. like stripping, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and how much in the contempt she had for, she had a contempt for mainstreamness that she didn't really mention, mm-hmm. but it was obvious she hated working. Right. You know what I mean? Which right. I love that. Like the it, grind. Like, and she, mm-hmm. and she did, she alludes to the fact that she did sex work for the money. Right. You know, cause she didn't want to be a fucking nine to five Canadian right. person living in America. Right. All right. What else you got? Um, okay. So did you, she mentioned when she met that guy Duke at California chicken cafe, did you ever go to California Chicken Cafe? No. I forgot to ask her about this. There used to be there. So I am assuming it's the the one that I'm thinking of on Melrose, which was across from a big 12 step meeting. And I don't know, for years I went there and ironically didn't never ate the chicken would always have like the broccoli pasta or the veggie wrap. But love, love, love California Chicken Cafe. The place that she brought up that I remember ridiculously mm-hmm. well is the bright spot yeah. in Echo Park. Yeah. I used to eat there every week and I vividly remember my girlfriend and I would eat at the bright spot mm-hmm. in Echo Park and I didn't work. You know, right. I, I didn't work for years. For years. Right. I would I'd like drive her to work and I'd go pick her up from work and I wouldn't work. I would do drugs. I'd wander right. around the neighborhood, whatever. Um, and I remember sitting with her thinking about how I need to work one day mm-hmm. and I would watch the waiters at the bright spot. Right. And my thought was I could never in a million years do that, mm-hmm. which is what I, w- I wound up doing. Right. Right. When I got back to New York, right. I wound up doing exactly <laughs> that. But I had that fe- that that experience in the bright spot. And the bright spot also was a sick, uh, great little diner. Yeah, with, it's still there with good huevos rancheros. Mm-hmm. All right. What else you got? Uh, also, she mentioned magic gas which right. was in Echo Park. Like yeah. in Echo Park, there's a gas station, which is independent called Magic Gas. And it's kind of like the gas station that's sort of like a third of the way up the hill. When that I, was where I lived. Uh, me too, homeboy. <laughs> when did you, Where did you live over there? I lived on Altivo Way at the very top of Echo Park. Did you know that little candy store we were talking about? Yes. And that Magic Gas, I used to stop there on the way to work after like not having slept because I'd been up on heroin all night and I would stop and get a Snickers bar and a Coke. When did you live there? So gross. I lived there What's from gross about it? A Snickers bar really satisfies. And a I Coke had a, for breakfast wow. with my cigarette? Yeah. Ugh, it's so gross. I don't like, I like Coke, but I wouldn't want it with a Snickers for breakfast. Yeah. Um, but I would love a cigarette. I'll tell anyway. Or I'd get like a Starbucks like Frappuccino in a bottle. It was so gross. Nice. Anyway, um, I lived there... Uh, on Altiba. I When's the there, last time you had a Coke? Probably like last month. When's the last time you had a cigarette? Yesterday? No, you know when I'll tell Dopey you. Con. No, the night before DopeyCon, I went to a party, um, a book party, and a, like across the street from my apartment. And this apartment building has like an amazing, like 365 degree 
you know, why do I always say 365, 360 degree view? They have the five (laughs) more degrees in their view. I'm like getting it confused the days of the year. And I was up there and somebody else was smoking and I was like, we started talking to these, my friend and I started talking to these young guys who were like probably Atticus's age and they were smoking. And I was like, he was, this kid was smoking parliaments. And I was like, can I bum a parliament? I hadn't had a cigarette since 2020. The last time I had a cigarette was when my book came out and I had my book event in LA. That was wow. the last time I so had a So two years. Yeah. I mean, this is about me. Like I have a, like I have a real cigarette like once every couple of years and my husband uses a jewel. So how was it? I mean, it was fine. Wasn't great. It was, it felt, it was like really good at first. And then it was kind of like, eh. Right. Right. I mean, it doesn't, thankfully for me, like for whatever reason, cigarettes, as much as I smoked, they were one thing that I always was able to like, I could just stop. And like, if I That's how Linda is. Linda, Linda can have a cigarette and then not smoke. If I, just imagining smoking, Mm -hmm. all I could think about is the next Really? I really love, I like, I do, I love cigarettes. I think they're kind of sexy and fun and like, I don't know. There's something, I think it's like, the reason I like it too is like some little vestige of like bad Aaron that I can like have once in a while. That's what your next book should be called. Bad Aaron. Bad Aaron. (laughs) 100%. Um, I would love uh, to smoke, but I'm like that. I mean, I'm like that with cereal. The second I take my first bite, I don't want to stop. I'm really like that with cookies. Like I'm really like mm-hmm. that. We had a we had a bad thing go down recently. I'll tell you the story. Get back to the notes though. I don't okay. want, I don't okay. want to derail All right. us. All right. So before we get to your story, so the most important thing that I was thinking about as you were you talked to her a lot about like the attachment theory stuff. Yes. In yes. the interview. You she didn't want to talk about it. No, I know, but you kind of kept you brought it up a couple of well, times. Well, it seemed important to me. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because Chris was Chris was obsessed with attachment theory. Really? It yeah. is really interesting because it really rings true. So I thought it might be fun to kind of like look up really quickly uh attachment theory styles and we can like diagnose ourselves. All right, let's do it. All right. So I know what I do. You want me to just like spoiler alert and tell you what I am already, or just read them and then no, you decide? No, I'll okay. tell you what you All are. Right. So the first one is. How ang- do you know that's what you are, though? We'll talk about it. So <laughs> the first one is anxious, preoccupied. Relationships can often make you feel anxious, unsafe, or insecure because you likely have a subconscious fear of abandonment. No, that's not. As it. a result, not you even, seek no. more closeness in your relationships and can feel afraid if you sense a loved one is pulling away. That's the first type. Okay, the maybe next that, type that could be me. Actually, is fearful avoidant. Relationships can feel chaotic, confusing, and overwhelming because you swing between being avoidant and anxious. Depending on the relationship, you can shift between being hot so. and cold, often feeling confused about your feelings. Hmm. Dismissive avoidant, intense emotions can feel overwhelming and can cause you to pull away from others. You may find yourself withdrawing from arguments or triggering situations. This need for independence can cause challenges in your relationships and inner conflict for you because deep down you want to connect with others. Yes. Securely attached, you often feel comfortable and at ease in relationships. You're also good at communicating your needs and feelings and feel open to vulnerability in your relationships. However... Sometimes you can experience difficulty when relating to those who aren't as secure in relationships. Those are the only options? Well, that's what this says, yeah. I'm going to say yours is the last one. Securely attached? Yes. I think now I'm pretty much securely attached, but I think my whole life I was dismissive avoidant. Like, I just pulled, like, I just with, I would just withdraw. Even if I was physically there, I was, like, checked the fuck out emotionally and that's still like my tendency with actual relationships yeah yeah i'm a mix of one and five five four 
four. Yeah, felt like between securely attached and anxious. Yes, anxiously attached. Yeah, Yeah. I would say that. I'd say that like probably your like your like old behavior would probably be anxious attachment. No, I'm sometimes anxiously attached now. And right, some, right, like, right. Like I'm anxiously attached to Mark Marin now, but I'm securely attached to people who aren't Mark Marin. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I think that that I think Chris's college postgraduate thesis was about attachment mm-hmm. style. That mm-hmm. was his thing, and he was uh, avoidant. You know, he would he would bring people in and then get the fuck out of there. That, that, was, that that's was, very much. I mean, I think that's pretty much how I always was. But the truth is that I don't subscribe to any of it being constant. Like I'm dismissive and avoidant in situations mm-hmm. and I'm secure in situations and I'm anxious in situations. I mean, I think this is generally for romantic really. They talk about attachment theory in particular with, with intimate relationships, which is like could be with your children, with your oh, family. Oh, yeah. Well, if, with it's, your, if it's romantic, with your rom- r- if it's romantic, life, yeah. then it, mine was definitely the uh, the first one. The anxious one. Yeah. yeah. Bef- before I settled down. Right. You know, when right. I, but, but that was the one. It's terrible. Right. Terrible. Read me that one again. <laughs> anxious attachment types are often nervous and this is a different website but whatever anxious attachment types are often nervous and stressed about their relationships they need constant reassurance and affection from their partner they have trouble being alone or single i didn't i i i i I can relate to a bunch of that i mean usually people are like a combination of things i'm definitely like a hundred percent was the avoidant avoidant is a position of strength yeah if i yeah I was not that. I, I was definitely more a, anxious than avoidant. It's a false, though. It's a false position of strength. Is there anything you want to say before we end this another episode of Dopey? Um, I would like to say that, just say again, reiterate again, how much fun I had at DopeyCon. Nice. It was so great to meet everybody that All I of did. the dopes except for Don. I know. I was just saying, <laughs> Don, if you're listening, He's not you were listening. supposed to come say hello, and you didn't. I didn't even know you were there. Don only listens if he's on. I know. I guess so. Unlike, I guess this is true. Unlike Dopey Dresner, who doesn't listen at, at all. At all, even if she's on. <laughs> listen, if you're out there, send in an email, send in a voicemail. Travis, you got socks coming to you. Let me know if you want the Manta socks or the Big Bird socks. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, I want to say one more thing. What? I didn't know one thing I learned about Dave yes. during his interview is yes. that I didn't know that the only time you ever did meth was in North Hollywood, and I think that's so appropriate. Yes. Yeah. I never did meth anywhere besides North Hollywood. That, that's and amazing. I and I I smoked it in North Hollywood. Oof. I snorted it in North Hollywood, and I shot it in North Hollywood. Yeah, I did it all. You did it all, Todd. <laughs> I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the show or not. Todd had we we lived in a three bedroom house with an attached garage mm-hmm. in North Hollywood. A beautiful house, craftsman style home mm-hmm. with like wood. Uh, beautiful woodwork inside the house, yeah. like attached, submerged couches. It was mm-hmm. beautiful. I was so excited to live there, and I knew that I would be part of ruining that house. As soon right. as I walked in, I couldn't imagine anything <laughs> happening there besides me ruining that house. And uh, and I've told this story a million times that when I moved in there, Todd was I moved in there straight out of rehab in Florida, mm-hmm. and Todd was in Northern California robbing a weed grower. You know, not not on purpose. He was telling right. some weed grower he was going to give him $5,000 right. for a pound of butt or whatever. He comes home addicted to meth. 
I had just gotten there coming off of everything. Right. And I decided I was, he was like trying to hide it from me, but he didn't really. And so I was like, I'm going to do meth with Todd. And, uh, and Todd became so obsessed with meth. I didn't. Yeah. I just tried to keep up with him. Right. He became, he had a, he had a little grow room off the side. His room was painted black, Mm -hmm. including the floor Mm -hmm. and the ceiling. You know, blackout curtain. Grow room or no, no. no. His room, his bedroom was just black, right? With an air conditioner that never stopped running. Uh Then off the side of it, he had a private bathroom and a big closet that was his grow room, which was all like aluminum foil and shoddy growing techniques. But he had a air pellet gun Mm -hmm. that looked like a real gun on his desk outside of. Uh, the, the, the grow area. And I know it was like him thinking he was in some meth fantasy with this fake pistol and his little shitty grow right. setup. It's and like, this was in NoHo? This was uh, on Coanga Boulevard uh, near Victory. N- not too far from Circus Liquors. Very close. Yeah. Very close. And, and Toluca Lake. And mm-hmm. all. It was right, right yeah. there. And um, man, I, I miss Todd and I miss those days even though... They sucked <laughs> so bad, but uh, I hated meth. Yeah. Hated it. I mean, I, I don't know. Like meth, I never, like, I kind of took meth when I was in high school and college the way that, like, I probably should have been in, on Adderall. <laughs> and then, you know, but then there were time. I mean, I've, I tried shooting meth and doing that with people, too. But it never really got out of control for me the way pills and, and heroin did. Yeah, me too. I mean, I I smoked meth like because I needed to do something. And then I shot and then I shot meth because I was shooting heroin again. Right. I was like, I might as well shoot meth. And then I would put it together and I was like, this is pretty good. I like that. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, and get Hannah's book. Strip. It's great. Hannah Sward. Hannah Sward, Canadian sex working uh, addict in recovery. Ex-Canadian, still (laughs) Canadian, ex-sex working addict in recovery. Get it at your bookstore. Is that, is that a terribly awkward plug? No. And if you're in New York, I think they might have signed copies at a book club bar. I should have had her sign my copy. You should have. Is this a signable book, though? Yeah. Why? Because look at it. It's like, oh, oh because it, it's shoddy it's in paperback. Yeah. But I think it only came out in paperback. Like some books only come out in paper ga- paperback. I don't know why I didn't get her to sign it. Now I'm annoyed. Did you, you didn't sign my copy of, of, of Strung Out. I didn't. Not cool. I think I offered to, and you're like, no. That doesn't sound like me. <laughs> I have like 15 copies of your book in my garage. Oh, from the event? Yeah, you got to get them back. I th- there's not 15 copies of my book. It's seen- like probably like five. Uh, yeah, maybe there's five copies of your book in my <laughs> Because I think I only brought 15, unless nobody bought any. But I think a couple people bought, bought I, the book. I think there's, there's several copies that right. strung out. All right, so check it out. If you also we have DopeyCon merch still. Yes. So write me about that. I never mentioned Dopey Gear, the Forever in Debt fucking hoodie and tank top and t-shirt. Limited edition, not really. Just one month you order it and then you get it. Right. Get that. Join up for Patreon for Christ's sake. I promise I'll make it to the next Patreon soon. Don't make promises. <laughs> Don't take that back. Because the next Patreon Zoom. When is it? You first have of to all, tell. You first know of all, what? Wait, right wait, wait, now, wait, wait, wait. it's 420. Wait, it's wait. 420. So. All right. All right. What? Wait. Yes. I just need to defend myself here. I don't show up because you usually tell me about them like at like five o'clock 
at the end of a long day and I'm not like prepared. And then I don't. Because what do you have to do to prepare for a Patreon Zoom? Well, the last time I I was going to come and I had food poisoning. Yeah, it seems like a bullshit excuse to me. Um, we're doing ah. it. We're doing it the last Saturday. Here, I'm going to tell you right now. The 29th. The 29th. When's Halloween? The 30th? 31st. Monday, the 31st. And that's also the last Good Morning Dopey. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I don't know when it's going to be. All right. I don't know. I have no idea. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Oh, my dad just came home, uh, probably on purpose. Dad, do you want to end the show? Hi. Do you think you can walk to the mic any slower? I, I just arrived and saying goodbye. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. You sound very meek. I, I just walked 10 miles. No, two miles. Uh, and toodles for Chris. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Tell, tell them what you made me do. What I was I succumbed to doing. I, I don't remember. Joining your horrible oh, yes. fantasy basketball. <laughs> yeah, he did it. He did it. It was terrific. It took a lot of pers- persuading. So Amazing. And I'm ready to make him a trade, by the way. All right, what's your offer? Um, who do you want for uh, Rudy Gobert? Why do, why do you want to get rid of Gobert? Uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not saying anything. Oh, he's a terrific player. He's great. Goodbye. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Thank you, Aaron. And fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. I want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind Leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road However far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had